My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor at Woodland Hills Church. Good to see you all here on this wonderful, lovely uh, Sunday morning. If you're visiting for the first time, we're really glad that you're here. And if you want to find out more about uh, this church and what we believe and things like that, uh, stop by at the Hub. We've got, uh, tell them you're visiting and we've got some information we'd love to share with you. If you want to find out more about what Third Way believes, well, stop by at the Hub and ask them about that as well. Everything's back at the Hub. Please turn off your cell phones, pagers, iPods, any other kind of noisemakers. I would deeply appreciate it. And if anyone with you starts to act up and be a distraction, we've got soundproof rooms in the back, and we encourage you to take them back there, and you can still be part of the service that way. There's only one announcement, and that's our 20-something ministry, which is called Immerse. Join Immerse if you're 20-something for our next monthly gathering. Bring your own munchies, uh, and they'll supply the Frisbees, because they're going to have some Frisbee stuff. And the game is on Friday, May 7th at 7 o'clock. So if you're 20-something, get, get to know other 20-somethings. Uh, Shauna Bourne, who usually does the announcements here, uh, she's the head of that ministry, so come and be a part of that. We are in the middle of this uh, series, Scandalous Love. It's hitting a lot of people. It's beautiful. I love it. It's just, it's going well. Um, and uh, it's just been cool. We talked about what love is the first week. We talked about God being love. We talked about how Jesus is the central definition of who God is and how Jesus trumps all other revelation. And... Um, We'll be having question and answer time on May 11th about that. And by the way, there's a lot more stuff that we didn't announce that's in the bulletin and encourage you, if this is your spiritual home, to read that and be informed because there's a lot of stuff going on. One of them is that Q&A on May 11th. But so we, we talked about Jesus as the central revelation. And then we talked about uh, the covenantal love and how that's so different from what like, a kind of contract understanding of love. We talked about last week about how we, we, we see the world because of the fall and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see the world through this grid of contract, always assessing and, and, and evaluating and policing and how that blocks uh, the beauty of, of God's love to us and how we need to be freed from that. If you weren't here for those messages, I encourage you to get them and listen to them because it's just foundational stuff. So this morning we're going to be talking about victorious love or the kind of power that God's love uses in this world. Now to do this message, I've asked Dale Johnson to help me. Because you can preach with words, but a picture is worth a thousand words. At least I've been told that. In the case of Dale, it's worth about 10 million because he paints so well. He's a professor of art at Bethel University, does a lot of ministry down in, in the Dominican Republic, uh, working with, with, with kids there and, and, and using art to minister to them. A lot of the artwork, most of the artwork out in the gathering area is, is from uh, Dale. Uh, he's letting us just hang that out there. Uh, he's kind of nationally renowned, and we're blessed just to have him as part of this congregation. So Dale, would you come up here? Give a warm Wilden Hills welcome to Dale Johnson. Woo! All right. All right, pray powerful anointing on you. So here's the thing. I, I'm going to be teaching here, and as I'm teaching, Dale is uh, just going to be uh, kind of putting that into uh, uh, art. Uh, I gave him the, uh, the notes ahead of time so he could get, kind of be praying about it and, and get an idea. And so he's been throughout the, the, the previous two ser services painting some stuff. He's going to finish this up uh, during this service. And at the end of the message, I'll go over and interview him, and he'll just kind of talk about what uh, was going on with him as he was uh, preaching through art, as I'm preaching through words. Let's pray. Father, we just pray an anointing on Dale. Uh, yes, give him, let your creativity flow in him and through him. And Lord, let your word be clear this morning. Confront the things in our life that need to be confronted. For every person in this auditorium, listening through podcasts, television, whatever, open our eyes and ears to really grasp and be overwhelmed by your love and your unique, radically unique kind of power 
the power of your love. And God, cause us to repent, turn from images of you that we've had that are really insulting and be freed from those to see you in all of your beauty. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. 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 I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a passage that really centers on the unique quality of the power of God's love. I've had to work through in my brain this sort of compulsive song that got in there somehow last service, Huey Lewis in the News, It's the Power of Love. You know, you don't need no credit card, don't need, need no train, no, how's it go? You don't need money, you don't need, you don't need no credit card to ride this train. Well, don't think about that song, okay, because cause, cause I don't want you to think about that. That's the song I don't want you to think about. It's the wrong kind of love. Power of love. That's all those are very good dance to. I gotta, I gotta give it that. NDY should play it. But uh, this is a different kind of power, a different kind of love. It's radically different. Oh, Lord, help us to see this. It takes God to open our eyes to really see him in all of his unique, radical beauty. Uh, I'll be reading sections of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 through verse 27. It goes like this. For the message of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, know the present tense there. Those who are being saved. We don't usually talk that way. We talk about, are you saved? But the Bible talks about it in three tenses. Are you saved? And are you being saved? And then, will you be saved? Because salvation isn't primarily about your eternal destination, though it includes that. But it's primarily about participating in the life of God and being made whole, having the shalom of God invade our life. And so to those who are being saved, to those who are being made whole, to those who are learning how to participate in the reign of God, the kingdom of God, to those people, Christ is the power of God. Now, it's foolishness to everybody else. But if you're in on the kingdom, you see that this is the power of God. So Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, to those who are being saved, to those who are participating in the reign of God, both Jews and Greeks, we preach Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he ends in verse 27 by saying, God chose the foolish things of the world, things that look foolish to the world, to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world, things that look profoundly weak, to shame the strong. Notice here that the cross looks weak. The power of God looks weak. But it is the power of God. The cross will ultimately put to shame those who think they are strong. And the cross looks pathetically weak and foolish to those who think they are strong. It's shamefully weak and shamefully foolish. That's what this passage is saying. Which means this. Everything the world thinks is strong and powerful is contradicted by and shamed by the power of God, the real power of God. And that means this, that one of the main ways, the central way that you can know that you're thinking about and talking about the true power of God as opposed to false ideas about God's power, one of the ways that you know that this is the real McCoy, the real power of God, is that it looks weak. It looks foolish. It looks shamefully weak. If it looks like that, it doesn't look anything like the power that we normally associate with the world, well, then that is the real power of God. I, you could call this 
Paul's criteria of foolishness. It comes out of this passage. I could formalize it like this. If a conception of God's power doesn't look shamefully weak or foolish, well then, you know it's not the true biblical conception of God's power. Because God's power is defined by Calvary. Keep that in mind. Lock that in. I'll be coming back to it several times in this message. This is as, it's as true of God's power as, as it is of God's love. That if we're really seeing it for what it is, it takes a supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit to believe it's true. Because in our natural, finite, fallen minds, it's too beautiful to be true. We talked about that last week. Paul prays that we'd have the power to understand and grasp the love of God. Well, the power of God is simply the power of his love, and it takes a supernatural empowerment of God to believe that it's true. If anyone's talking about a conception of God's power that doesn't require supernatural anointing to believe, well, then you know that that's not the true power of God. The true power of God looks foolish and shamefully weak to the natural mind. It takes the revelation of the Holy Spirit to see it as being really the power of God. Now, to get into this a little deeper, I want to go back to Genesis 3, which we talked about last week. Genesis 3 deals with the fall. We need to understand this. Help us, Holy Spirit, to grasp this. The fall we saw last week consists of the, of, of the enemy seducing us to want to be God, to want to be like God. Now, we're already like God. We're made in His image in terms of our character. That, at least that's what God's goal is, for us to be like Him in terms of our love. But He doesn't want us to try to be like Him in other ways. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is God's loving, no trespassing sign. And his way of saying, listen, you be like me in terms of how you pour your life into one another, in terms of how you take care of the animals and and the environment. But don't try to be like me in terms of being wise. Don't try to think you can define good and evil. Don't think it's your job to police good and evil. Don't go into that evaluating, assessing, policing kind of a world. No, just love. I'll take care of all the judgment. But the fall results because we want to be God. And so we have this impulse to be omniscient, which means all-knowing. We want to be like him in terms of wisdom. And so we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and what happens is, by that means, the accuser makes us accusers. We start judging ourselves. We start judging other people. We start judging God. We make God out to be the accuser as we project our own accusing impulse onto him. And that's how the enemy blinds us to the beauty of God, the beauty of of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. He blinds us. Instead of seeing God as the, the, the loving servant God revealed in Jesus, we see him as the accuser. The same thing happens with power. Now follow me on this. It happens with power. We want to be God, not just in a loving way, but we want to be like him in terms of his wisdom, and we want to be like him in terms of power. We grasp after power. We have this impulse to be all-powerful. Omnipotent is the word uh, that's usually used. We want to control things. We want to be lord of our own life. That's about power. We want to have our own security at our own hands, something we can trust. That's about power. We want to manipulate our environment to get our own needs met, to feel good about ourselves, or to get people to agree with us or whatever. That's about power. It's a fallen impulse, this desire to control, to have power, our own security, our own safety our own way of getting life, to be Lord of our own life. It's, it, it's, at that, it's part of that core sin that separates us from God. That we have this impulse to control, and that impulse to control gets wrapped up with our impulse to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to judge, to accuse. The impulse to judge and to accuse makes us feel superior. We, 
We, we have uh, the superior wisdom and morality and, and, and insight as opposed to those people who get it all wrong. That, that's a fallen impulse. And then when that gets mixed up with our impulse to try to control, what happens is we try to, we, we, we want to take our superior wisdom and our superior morality and impose it on others. Everybody wants to rule the world in one way or another. Everyone wants to be king. Now, the trouble is, is that not, not everyone can be king. If I'm right and you disagree with me, then you have to be wrong. Sorry. Uh, if I have superior wisdom and morality, well, then your morality and wisdom that disagrees with mine can't be superior. And boom, we've got a conflict. In fact, I would suggest to you that most of the hatred and most of the violence throughout human history is a result of this. This lethal combination of our lust for wisdom, knowing what we're not supposed to know or thinking we know what God says we cannot know, this knowledge of good and evil, and this lust for power. You put the two together and you've got, you've got war. This is why politics so often is ugly. You know, why is it that you can't have MS, NBC News and Fox News, the people get together and, and they just, just do 1 Corinthians 13 on one another? Wouldn't that be lovely? If, you know, the, the Sarah Palins of the world would get together with, with the Barack Obamas of the world and they get together and they'd say, you know, I just appreciate your heart and you care so much about the poor and, and you know, and you've got some good ideas. I, I kind of disagree with that about this, you know, but, but at least your heart's in the right place. Let's work together to get something done. And they'd say the same thing about them. Oh, yeah, you know, I appreciate your heart and I believe the best about you and I hope the best about you and you've got some insight and I appreciate that. But I disagree with a few things here, but let's talk about it. Doesn't work like that, does it? You turn to MSNBC News and then Fox News, and more often than not, there's venom. They demonize the other side. They don't really care like we do, or, or, or they just don't get it, but we do. And there's this us-them polarity, and it's the result of this lethal combination of our lust for forbidden wisdom and our lust for forbidden power. Ah, oh, the violence it creates. Now, see, here's the thing. Just as we project our impulse to accuse onto God and make him into the cosmic accuser, so also we take our impulse to control and project that onto God and make him into the cosmic controller. And just as our, our impulse to make God the accuser uh, uh, blinds us to his beauty, so also when we project our impulse to control onto God, it blinds us to his beauty. We end up defining God's greatness instead of the beauty of his loving character. We define greatness in terms of his sheer power. And by power, we mean control. We would want to control the world if we could. So we assume that God must be micro-controlling the world because he can. In fact, that is the oldest piece of pagan theology there is. Go back as far in history as you want, study what the pagans believed about God, and you'll find this. God's greatness is his power. It wasn't about his character or anything like that. It was about power. We've always worshipped power. Zeus, why is Zeus the greatest of gods? Well, it's not because he's got a great character. Because, read Homer, he doesn't have a great character. He's about as fallible as we are, sometimes more so. But he's got more power, he's got what we would like, and that's power, so he's great because of his power. And you can go back before the, the ancient Greek, Greeks, and, and they, uh, go, go back to ancient Mesopotamia, the Sumerians, and Babylonians, and you'll find that the greatest god is the one who's got the most control. And the gods are always fighting one another for it. We define God's greatness in terms of control, and it's pagan. And then some people come along and they say, well, listen, our God, our God is not just the most powerful God. He's all-powerful, which, which means he's got all the control. Everything that happens is his doing. This is like Zeus on steroids. And so you have the ancient Stoics in the 4th century B.C., 
who think that everything that happens is a result of God's will. This is the kind of power that's ascribed to Allah in the Quran. In Islam, everything that happens is all part of God's will. And then beginning with St. Augustine in the 4th century, unfortunately, you have that kind of thinking creeping into Christianity. Everything that happens is a result of God's will. And the folks who believe this, the Christians who believe this, are sincere brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's no question about salvation. Some people ask that, like, well, you think that they're really saved. And, and I never go there. It, 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 I, I, I would never question someone's salvation based on their theology. It's not about that. But on the other hand, this, this idea, which is as old as paganism itself, completely blocks our capacity to be overwhelmed by the beauty of God's love. Its implications are incredibly negative. Because if God is in fact controlling everything, then all of the ugliness of the world gets on him. And our picture of him gets polluted by all the creepy stuff. If God's controlling everything, then that means the six kids who were killed this last week up in Cambridge, well, that, God was controlling that. And, and, and the, the gal a couple years ago who was tortured to death by her mother's sick boyfriend uh, as he tortured and scalding hot water, well, every detail of that, every scream was exactly what God controlled. And every disease and all the cancer and the paralysis and every accident and all, all, all the mudslides and the earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people, all exactly as God wants it because he's controlling everything. And all the wars and the Hitlers of, of, of history and the Stalins and the massacres and the genocide and the slaughtering of the Khmer Rouge and, and what went on in Rwanda, all of that is exactly as God wants because he does all the controlling. And even who goes to heaven and even who goes to hell, well, if God controls everything, well, even that is his doing. It pollutes our, our picture of God. It blocks us from seeing his beauty. And even people who don't hold that theology explicitly can be influenced by it because it's so natural for us to project unto God our controlling mechanism. And so we have slogans that we say without really thinking about them, how, how there are no accidents. And when a tragedy happens, we say, oh, it's all part of a plan. Nothing happens by accident. There's a reason for everything. God has his reasons. God knows what he's doing. He's still on his throne and so on and so on and so on. As though God was just lining up all the pieces in place so that the girl got raped right when he wanted her to and, and, and the kidnapping occurred just as it was supposed to and the policeman got shot and ambushed yesterday just as it was all planned. God's controlling all of that. And the people who believe this, sincere, wonderful people, uh, and, and, and they, they say that, that, that the all-controlling God is a God of love. But it's hard to see how that's possible if, if he's controlling all the hatred. And that's his doing. And they say, oh, the God who controls everything is, is altogether beautiful. But it's hard to see how that's possible if he's the one who's controlling all the ugliness. And the God who's all controlling is a caring God. But it's hard to see how that's possible if, if, if every kidnapping was his doing and if people going to hell is his doing. He's controlling everything. People may fear that God for sure. And maybe they're even grateful because they've got reason to think that the, the hammer won't get lowered on them. Well, as God's controlling everything, certain people get damned, but at least they didn't. So they feel grateful the same way I felt grateful. I said last week that my sister took the beating instead of me. But it's really going to be hard, I think, in the core of your being to have this passion and this love and this joy and this delight and this liberation in this all-controlling God. Or to have trust in this all-controlling God. Because for all you know, your little precious newborn baby was born for the purpose of being on fire eternally to glorify this all-controlling God. So how do you trust how do you trust that God? And you'll say these things because you believe they're true, and, 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 and if you don't say them, well, then maybe you're not one of his chosen, but it's very hard in the core of your being, to the extent that you've got a healthy compass going on, to really believe that.
the all-controlling God. We project on a God our impulse to acquire power and control. How different is the New Testament's understanding of divine power? And how different the New Testament's understanding and portrait of God? Now, you can find verses throughout the Bible, yes. You can find verses that can be interpreted to support the all-controlling picture of God. But you also find a ton of verses that reject that view, that are against that view. And even the verses that can be used to uh, interpreted in that way can be interpreted in other ways. I have a whole chapter in my book, Is God to Blame?, that's about the reinterpretation of those verses that are used to suggest that God's all-controlling. But more important than how you interpret particular verses is this. And it goes back to the message two weeks ago. What kind of picture of God do we get in Jesus Christ? Because he is the singular word of God, the singular word, uh, image of God, the singular form of God. If you see me, you see the Father. He trumps all other revelations. So what kind of picture of God do we find in Jesus Christ? And folks, it's not the micro-controlling picture of God. It's not the God who uses power in that way. It's a very different kind of God and a very different kind of power that we're given in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be really clear here. I believe with all my heart, passionately, unequivocally, without compromise, that God is all-powerful. And I believe passionately and unequivocally uh, that God is all-sovereign. Yes, amen. But I also believe passionately that we must not take our ideas of power and our ideas of sovereignty and project them onto God. Rather, we should let God tell us what power looks like when he has it and what sovereignty looks like when he has it. And he tells us what it looks like in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect expression of the Father's essence, Hebrews 1.3, which brings me back to Paul's foolishness criteria. Remember that? If a conception of God's power doesn't look shamefully weak and foolish, it's not the true biblical conception of God's power. If the conception of God's power looks like normal power, well, then you're not talking about the right kind of power. If it doesn't look foolish and it doesn't look weak, it's not the right conception of God's power as it's revealed in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, folks. Holy Spirit, help us to see this. There's nothing weak about the all-controlling portrait of God. There's nothing foolish about the all-controlling portrait of God. There's nothing unnatural about the all-controlling portrait of God. It looks totally normal. That's exactly what we would do if we were running the universe. And the proof of that is that go back to as far as you want in paganism and that's how they were thinking about God that's the normal way to think about God there's nothing distinctly Christian about that it's as pagan as it gets we project onto God our fallen use of power and think that that's how God uses power it doesn't take a supernatural act of God to believe that God controls all that kind of power because that's what pagans have always believed but it takes a supernatural revelation of God to believe that God uses power in the way of Calvary in the way of the cross Follow me on this thought experiment. Holy Spirit, help us to see this. Think, think about this. The reason why we want to control is because, because we're fallen, because we're empty. We, we, we want to control because we feel insecure, we feel vulnerable. We want to control because we want to get our own needs met our own way. We want to control because we want to ascribe worth to ourselves. We want to control because we're pathetic. It's true. Find me a control freak, and I'll show you a person who on the inside, at least, is, is pathetic. And we all are pathetic in various ways. We manipulate to get our own needs met. But imagine God, a God who isn't pathetic. Imagine a God who, who isn't empty and needy. and doesn't need to use power to acquire anything because he's already full. Imagine a God 
who's got no emptiness, who's, who has no insecurities, who's perfectly self-confident, and ask the question, how would that God use all of his power? Even more, imagine a God. Imagine a God who is perfect, eternal, agape love. A God who's completely, as the Bible says, a God who's other-oriented, a God who's self-sacrificial, a God who delights in pouring himself out to others as he's been doing throughout eternity in the triune God. How would that God use his omnipotence, the fact that he's got all power? You don't have to guess because, in fact, we have a revelation of that in the New Testament. Jesus is that picture of God. One example of it, beautiful example of it, comes uh, the night before he was, uh, the night in which he was betrayed, before he got crucified. We read this in John 13. Listen to this. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us to get this. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Listen to this. Jesus knew, he knew, that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, it says, so, meaning because of this, for this very reason, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Precisely because he had all the power. He knew he was God from God entering into this world to reveal who God was. Knowing that, knowing he was going back to God, knowing that he had all power, knowing that he could do anything that he wanted. What does God do when he can do anything that he wants? Because he is God and he can do anything he wants. What he does is he wraps a towel around his waist, gets on his knees, and washes the feet of his disciples. The very ones he knows are going to betray him and deny him in a couple of hours. See, this is so radically different from the quote-unquote normal conception of power. Zeus type of gods, they use their power to meet their own needs. They use power to have people serve them. Zeus gods have humans washing their feet. They don't wash anyone's feet. No, they got the power. They use that power to get us to serve them. They don't serve anybody. How different is the true God revealed in Jesus Christ? It's mind-boggling. He knows he's got all this power, and now he's going to manifest what that power looks like by using it to wash his disciples, seizing this wonderful opportunity to wash dirty, smelling feet of people who are going to betray him. It's mind-boggling. The God of this universe, who created this universe, spoken into being, holds every molecule in existence right now. This awesome God with this awesome power, he now uses that power, the power that spoke everything into existence and holds us in existence this very second. He uses that power to do the work of a slave. The most demeaning work of a household servant was to wash the feet of visitors. The omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe does that to these disciples right here. See, that is foolish. That is foolish. That looks weak. We would never do that if we were king of the universe, which is how you know that this is the true conception of power. It takes uh, the work of God in your life to believe that that is true. And it gets even crazier than this, folks. A couple hours after this, this all-powerful God went to a garden to pray. And as he was, he was considering the prospect of the hell that he was going to enter into and the sin that was going to be placed upon him and the separation from the Father. As a full human being, the intensity of that caused the uh, blood to, to, to ooze out of his pores. That's how God, the all-loving God, uses his omnipotent power. And then the folks come to arrest him. 
And Peter's still relying on the world's kind of power. He takes out a sword and starts swinging it, lops off the ear of one of the aggressors. Jesus rebukes Peter for using that kind of power and says, that's not the kind of power we're into here in the kingdom. And he displays the real kind of power by loving the guy who is arresting him and healing his ear. That's what an omnipotent God does when this God is an agape God, an other-oriented God. He uses his power to serve others, other-oriented. That's who God is from eternity to eternity. And then they arrest him, and he lets them arrest him. And then they mock him, and they beat him. They spit on him. They humiliate him. They crucify him. They put crowns of thorns on him. They pierce his side. That's what an agape God does with his power. He could have stopped it, could have called legions of angels, could have just one little flex of his muscle and it would have been done. But he lets this happen. Why? Because he's an other-oriented God and this is what those people needed to have happen. And he loves those people. And then with his final gasping breath, as he's suffocating, because you suffocated to death uh, when you were crucified, with his last breath he prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The beauty of this is just beyond comprehension. And they divided. As he's praying that, they were dividing up his clothes by casting lots. That's how an all-powerful God of agape love uses his power. They're rolling dice. Or above, above them is his naked body, because they got crucified in the nude. That was part of the humiliating process. People looking at, gawking at you. Naked, he's there, his pain-wracked body being tortured. And the all-powerful Messiah who can do anything, this is what he wants to do. Pray for their forgiveness. In this situation, the all-powerful God's got one thing on his mind. One thing. In this pain-wracked, humiliating situation, the one thing on his mind is about them. Their salvation, their forgiveness, their reconciliation. That's what an all-powerful God does when, he, when he's a God of other-oriented love. He uses it to serve others in the most humble, servant kind of way. Have you ever heard of anything so foolish in your life? Can you imagine a more pathetic picture of God than this if you're thinking in terms of the, the natural understanding of the world? We would never do this. If we had all the power in the world, hey, let's use all of our power to get ourselves humiliated and crucified for the sake of our enemies. We wouldn't do that. We don't like to even be inconvenienced by, by folks. If a military general acted like this, we'd fire him on the spot. You're loving your enemies? That's what you're... You, you got that power to kill them, not to love them. See, this is the opposite of the world's way of thinking about power. Imagine this, imagine this. Imagine Barack Obama running for president a year and a half ago. And one of the things, of course, you've got to do if you're going to run for president is you've got to tell people how you're going to handle the Taliban and these terrorists. And so what would happen if, if, if Barack, on the campaign trail, on a, on a speech that was televised, he says, I will use my, the power of the presidency to get victory over the Taliban. And here's my plan. Knowing that I am the most powerful person on the planet, uh, I will use that power to, first of all, wash the feet of Osama bin Laden. That's my plan. And my plan then is to let them arrest me. And then with cameras in full view to mock me and to spit on me and to then finally execute me, putting me on a cross. That's my plan. I'm going to let them do that because, you see, as president, I want them to know that I love them and that we care about them. And then I'm going to bring out the real shock and awe. Because now I'm going to, as I'm hanging naked on this uh, cross, I will pray, publicly pray, for their forgiveness. As I'm close to death, this will be my final, my, my final card, I'll pray for their death. As they're gambling over my underwear, as I'm hanging there naked, I'm going to be praying for their forgiveness. Would anyone in America vote for him? 
if that was his plan. A few crackpots, maybe, but uh, he, he, he's not going to get much of a hearing on the cable news. Not after that. See, by the world's understanding of power, this is lunacy. This is crazy. This is at best impractical. But actually, it's just insane. You can't run the world that way. It's, it's pathetic. That's weak. They'll win. Let's go back and remember Paul's criteria of foolishness. You know this is the true power of God because the cross is not how we would use power. It's not how any military general or any president would use power. There's nothing normal about using your power to get crucified for the people who are crucifying you. It looks the opposite of the normal use of power. It looks the opposite of Zeus type of power. It looks the opposite of Allah type of power. It looks the opposite of Stoic kind of power. No God in history has ever been this stupid. To come down and become a human being, a vulnerable human being, and get crucified for the people who are crucifying him. It's foolish, it's pathetic, it's weak. And therefore it's true. No human being would ever come up with this. We know what human beings do when they want to come up with stuff and it looks like Zeus. This doesn't look like Zeus. This is the revelation of the true God. It is this, it is this outside of the radar of our normal thinking about power and about love. This is the foolishness of the true God revealed in Jesus Christ. Because, folks, this is other-oriented power. God is an other-oriented agape love God. So, of course, he'll use his power, his omnipotent power, his sovereign power to be other-oriented, to serve others. That's who he is. And that love looks profoundly weak in terms of the world. It does. It looks foolish in terms of the world. But that's because we're in bondage to the devil. 1 John 5.19 says the enemy controls the world. We're blinded. In the same way that we think God's the cosmic accuser, we think he's the cosmic all-controller. And we're blinded. And, and, and because of the fall, we're, we're addicted to this kind of power to preserve ourselves, defend ourselves, and conquer the evildoers. And so we think that kind of power, the, the cross kind of power is weak. But in fact... In fact, it is the power of God. In fact, it is the most powerful thing in the universe. Brute force can, can, can bring in, into existence this universe, and God's got that. He can speak into existence every molecule that is. Got that. Billions and billions and billions of stars. Yes, an incredible display of brute force. God has that power, and it's amazing. But Bruce, brute force cannot turn the heart of a personal free being and get them to love you. Brute force could make them say loving words and loving thoughts about you, but it couldn't actually get them to fall in love with you. Brute force could never turn the heart of a free agent around and get that agent to surrender their life to you. Only the beauty of this kind of self-sacrificial power can cause a sinner like me to freely surrender my heart to him. Only the beauty of this other-oriented kind of power can transform an enemy into a friend. That's why it's the kind of power that we ourselves are called to use. Only the servant kind of love can win us and free us from our addiction to that kind of power and to our impulse to accuse and to judge and free us to start dancing in the kingdom. The power to create the universe is impressive, but it's nothing compared to the power of winning over people by displaying your love for them. Most powerful force in the universe. And this is how God gets victory. It's the victory of, of God's love overcoming our rebellion and evil and resistance to him. It's the victory of, our, of, of him winning back our heart, the heart of a, of, of a beloved who's now unfaithful. This is the victory of the good shepherd who finally found the lost sheep and the lady who finally found the lost coin and the father who finally got his son back. That's victory, but it's not a victory of micro-controlling things. 
It's a victory of love. Only an insecure deity who didn't trust in the power of his love would have to microcontrol things to get victory. And that's not a very praiseworthy kind of victory. But the kind of victory that will go looking for the sheep and giving everything for the beloved, that is a praiseworthy kind of victory because it's a victory of love. And notice this, one final thing. If this is God's victory, the victory of love, then it means that God is not victorious unless you're part of the equation. Because his victory is getting you back. His victory is getting you back. He's glorified when he shares his glory with you. His victory is when you are brought in to the dance of the triune God. God is this beautiful. We, we, we would never do this in our fallen instincts if we had all the power in the universe, but God does. He, he actually makes his victory contingent on our joining it. He's a God of love. It's mind-boggling. It's beautiful. It's, it's, in terms of the world, pathetic and outlandishly foolish, and that's how you know it is true. The victory of the God who's crucified. Dale, I'm done. Are you done? Let's see what you got. Uh-oh. Wherever you're at, you've got to stop. And just, uh, I want, want you to just share a word about kind of what's going on in your heart and in your mind as I'm talking and you're painting, and, and explain a little of this to us. Well, first, it crossed my mind several times that this is impossible. Uh, it's... Uh, you, you gave me a large manuscript, and uh, I, gave, I gave him the notes ahead of time, just so yeah, Kenny would have time. And to I think only about could, it. I could only maybe understand in one thing, uh, so I just kept repeating that. Uh, <laughs> but basically, it seemed like the amazing thing in all this was that Jesus had a chance to really grandstand, or could the God-Man Jesus there? Man, he was assigned Almighty power. And then what does he do? He kind of blows it and goes down and kneels and takes some of his uh, own garments and wipes uh, and uses yeah. a towel and washes the feet and okay. I, of the disciples. That, to me, I can't get over it. So I took originally a, a band, a simple band of yellow, blue, red. Those are the primary colors, three basic colors. And they're bands that run across in a rhythmic way. Then I took these one little mark. I've used the mark over my whole long, long career of painting because it's real simple to draw and also it symbolizes, uh, it symbolizes humanity for me. And instead of painting all those little parts. So, so, so these marks are, 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 like, are, are human. Like, like a person. Yeah. Okay. And they sometimes are a prayer and so I've used them that way because I think painting can be really a prayer. But in this case, I was thinking of generations and generations of men and women and children. So the bars represent kind of generations, generations. and generations yeah. and, 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 and the marks of the individuals. And then it's almost, I just saw this when I was setting out with my wife last service, but it's almost like Jesus pulls all the system up, you know, like this, my canvas pulls it actually up and uses it to dry, wash and dry my feet. Uh -huh. and, and that's the kind of God we have is that he thinks it's worth dealing with us and to touch us and to touch our dirty feet and our sin-stained lives and uh -huh. fix us up so we can dance. And then my daughter kind of thought, she didn't understand what this was until Greg talked, but she thought they were dancers or ballet dancers. And I thought, hey, that's okay. There's black ones, there's yellow ones, there's tan ones. There's, you know. It seems to me that the color is part of diversity and how yeah, it crosses all the different lines. Yeah. It brings it all together. I'm tired of artwork and, and songs and things that don't include different yeah, yeah. Rhythmic patterns and different scales. Is there any significance to the threefoldness of it? I mean, we had three services, so maybe it was just kind of... It, it, was, hand, it was handy that way, because I took that one. Uh, 
Well, um, and, and I, so I took this one Saturday night, and I tried to do this at the 9, and then I kind of gave up on this by here by the 11, trying to get all of it to go. It isn't finished, but I'm going to try to finish it, and we'll show it afterwards. But there is an amazing... I never thought of this until I started making this painting. Uh -huh. But Jesus, we're willing to uh, do our feet again. Yeah. And, Oh, Watch so, so he, again. it's kind of he comes back over and over again. I'm it's not just one so. time, but he's yeah. always coming back. Now, if we were all perfect, I don't think this would work. But this seems to yeah, be yeah. the pattern. I, I, I kind of think, you know, I mean, three represent you know, the, the triune God and represents yeah. completeness. And so kind of what I get from it is, is across all generations and for every individual, this foot washing love of the triune God just permeates everything. Yeah. Permeates every individual and it's just kind of bring it all together. And then as you were saying, uses that material and, and, and creates this swirl. It is kind of a dance. It's a dance of the triune God. Then I, go ahead. And you said, and I, I've heard him say this even before he was a pastor here, but he just was frustrated. He wish he could show the beauty of, of God, the beauty of God's love. Well... Here I am today. Trying All right. To, <laughs> trying to do this. A picture's worth so, a thousand words. So, so I'll point out some flowers. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll say I even snuck them in here illegally. But that, that was uh, not in the plan. But I thought some, uh, the secretary or someone here brought these beautiful uh -huh. flowers. And I was so touched by it. And I brought those, uh -huh. kind of a wimpy little bunch down there. Uh -huh. Uh, last night, but and, 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 great. What, what role does the, the flowers play in this? Well, I was thinking these stinky feet, uh, you know, nasty, dirty, sweaty feet. It was something mm. that he chose to deal with, and maybe when he was done, there was a sense of lilac. Ah, that's good. That's good. That's, that's good. That's good. Hey, man, I appreciate it. God bless you. Amen. The humble God, the other-oriented God, uses all that power to enter into our smelly world and make us into, the Bible says, a fresh smelling fragrance unto God. Uh, taking our dirty smelly feet, making them into a lilac fragrance. It's, it's beautiful, it really is beautiful. It's, it's, what a beautiful God, what a beautiful God, what a beautiful God. I'm just gonna close in a quick prayer here and uh, as I do that, would the altar team come forward and if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, come forward and pray with these folks, that's why they're here. If you're interested in being part of the prayer ministry, stop at the hub. Uh, if you're visiting want to find out more about this church, stop at the Hub. If you want to find out more about uh, Third Way Church, stop at the Hub. If you want to have some assignments to uh, digest this throughout the week, we've got some assignments back at the Hub. So everybody stop back at the Hub for one reason or another, okay? It'll be a tremendously beautiful traffic jam. I, I pray with the Father in Jesus' name. I just pray to God, keep on opening our eyes, keep on opening our eyes to get it to purge from our minds all the insulting pictures we've had about you and to trust that your character really looks like this and to be overwhelmed by your love, transformed by your love, liberated by your love and dance with you, seeing our life as a dance as you wash our feet. Thank you, God, for cleansing us, washing our feet, washing our hearts, washing our minds. Keep it up, keep it up until we, Lord, reflect you in all of your diverse beauty. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said one last time. God bless you guys. Go out and dance.